Hello, Stuff You Should Know listeners. If you want to come see us live, you've only got a couple of more cities this year that still have tickets, and that is Orlando and New Orleans. Yep, we'll be in Orlando on October 9th at the Plaza Live, and we'll be in New Orleans at the Civic Theater the following night, October 10th. And friends, like Chuck said, you better go get your tickets. Go to SYSKLive.com for info and ticket links and everything you need to come see us. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there, and the three of us are um, going riding on the freeway of love in a pink Cadillac. (laughs) There's no looking back. Jack. Who is that, Aretha? Yes. Good song for later stuff. For sure. That and then Knew You Were Waiting with George Michael. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hold up to me for the against, like, the stuff from the 60s and 70s, but... You're like, it's no Zeppelin. (laughs) No, I'm just talking about Aretha's earlier work. I know. Yeah. I know what you mean. I would have liked to have seen her sing with Zeppelin. That would have been neat. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I wonder what song she would have sung. I don't know. Uh, how about... Whole Lot of Love? Whole Lot of Love. We'll go with that one. Yeah. All right. Well, we get, need to get to reanimating Aretha and John Bonham. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Chuck. Enough of this. It's high time that we got to talking about the United States Highway Interstate System. Yeah. I love this stuff. I do, too. <clears throat> I was like, what is it about this that I do love? Because I've been meaning to do this one for a really long time. And I guess it's the fact that it's a huge mass of public works. Yeah, things. that's where it gets me. Civil engineering. We kind of have a thing for civil engineering, don't we? I think so, man. Like subways and bridges and like mm-hmm. all that stuff seems to uh, delight both of us. But then also the other thing I like about it that really kind of came to the to the fore through this research is the enormous impacts, both like good and bad, yeah. that this huge, massive, sweeping public work project had on, on America and still has today, like just completely restructured America inside and out. Yeah. And this also makes me want to do a commission, a piece on uh, the suburbs. Yes, dude. I think that's a great idea. That's a that's a big one to unpack. And commission a piece. I'm glad you said that because this was uh, this is based on an article written by the great Ed Grabinowski, the Grabster. That's right. So um, <clears throat> we should probably say what we're talking about. If you've never been to the United States, or if you've never been out of your house and you live in the United States, the America, <laughs> the America, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> has um, a really extensive system of roadways, like really, really fast, really well-designed interstates. That's what they're called. They're highways, they're expressways, speedways, whatever you want to call them. But they connect every major city in the United States to every other major city in the United States. You can get anywhere from anywhere. And there's something like 48,000-plus miles of interstate, just interstate, not not highways, not byways, not roads. I think that comes to something like 150,000 miles. But there's like 48,000 miles of just this incredibly well-engineered, well-constructed, super-fast um, uh, road ar- artery system. <laughs> Cardiovascular system for cars in the United States. Yeah, it's kind of what it looks like sometimes on a map. Mm-hmm, for sure. It's like a central nervous system for the U.S. So, shall we go back in time a bit, though? I think we should, but we had to lay down what we were talking about first. In, well, in complete um, contrariness to the standard SYSK fashion. That's right. Okay, so let's go back in time, Chuck. So, we're going back to the beginning of the 20th century here, and uh, at the time... Roads in the United States, and we're talking about, you know, roads outside of the major, major urban centers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had a little bit better roads, but the rural roads Mm -hmm. were not good by any standard. They were dirt roads, so when it rained, and we're not even talking gravel roads. We mean literally dirt roads. Yeah. um, Which seems like a catch-all term, but a gravel road is much, much better than a dirt road. For sure. 
because I've lived on both. <laughs> oh, fancy man. You lived on a gravel road? Yeah, growing up, I had a gravel road until I was like 10 or 11. They paved it. When did you live on a dirt road? Before they put gravel down. <laughs> oh, okay. So you lived on the same road, but it was a dirt uh-huh. road once. and then a, So I think when they put the gravel down, that's called an improved road. Yeah, it went from dirt to gravel improved to paved, which mm-hmm. I, and I said this on one episode, but I remember very distinctly when they paved it after my whole life going up that gravel road. It mm-hmm. felt like we were driving on pudding. Oh, yeah. It was nice. so smooth and weird. And we felt so modern. <laughs> so so you grew up on a road back in 1906, chewing tobacco and working in the mines? Is that, right. is that where you grew up? Uh, no, it was the 70s, but it was just a dead-end road. It wasn't a big neighborhood, which I've you. talked about before. I'll bet that was a pretty big difference in, um, in, in feeling when you had it paved. It was really weird. But rural roads at the early 20th century were dirt, and when it rained— it was terrible mud, and then when that dried up, there were terrible ruts, and it was not the biggest deal at the time uh, because cars were still pretty new and were very much uh, for the rich, but the horse and buggy and the horse-drawn carriage did not enjoy these roads either. Sure, no. And then um, another uh, mode of transportation, the bicycle, actually created something called the um, Better Roads Movement. Good Roads. Good roads movement. I like <laughs> mine better. Yeah, you got good, but wouldn't you rather have better? Sure. That, that was think, probably in the meeting. Let's think old-timey folks. So um, the good roads movement was was created by bicycle enthusiasts who said, like, these, you know, dirt track, muddy roads aren't going to work for bikes. And when people started uh, using automobiles, especially, like you said, wealthy people at first, they were like, these bike people are on to something. I'm a car guy, but the same applies. So let's kind of adopt this good road movement. And we're going to start agitating for better roads. And those better roads are, like you said, just laying down a layer of gravel was a vast improvement over what they had before. Yeah. And there was also um, legislation in 1893 uh, for what's called rural free delivery, Mm -hmm. RFD mail. Because at the time, if you lived in the country, Mm -hmm. You went and picked up your mail. They didn't bring it to you. That seems appropriate. And so in 1893, they finally passed legislation that said, you know, we need to get mail to people. And that was a big part of improving the roads as well. Right. They're never going to find out about Circuit City's newest sale <laughs> if we don't get them their mail out in the, out in the rural sticks. That's right. So um, there are people agitating for road improvement. But at the time, it was uh, – it was kind of taken on by the wealthy people who own cars, um, industrialists, philanthropists, benefactors. This is all like within the first 20, 20 years of the 20th century, I think, um, where clubs were formed, where they said, we're going to take over responsibility for improving roads and just basically getting things up to snuff so that um, – you know, we can drive our cars on these things. And I think they did it fairly locally at first, but by 1913, the Lincoln Highway was built. And that was the first transcontinental highway that was basically built for cars. Yeah, it went from uh, Times Square in New York Mm -hmm. to Lincoln Park in San Francisco. Yeah. And it didn't just carve it out of, you know, barren earth. It used a lot of the roads that were already there, improved on those, connected stuff together. Uh, there was a dude named Carl G. Fisher. Yeah, did you look an, into this guy? Yeah, he was an entrepreneur from Indiana, mm-hmm. real estate mogul, and a really big-time auto-slash-auto-racing enthusiast who had a, a, a way of marketing and, like, drumming up support for stuff like this. Yeah, he was he was big time into racing cars, but he had like such severe astigmatism. He had like Coke bottle glasses, but he still raced cars. And um, he actually set the record, the land speed automobile record. He made it around a two mile. He made it around a track, two miles on a track, mm-hmm. in two minutes. <laughs> Broke the record. Wow, that's not a joke. That's adorable. <laughs> it is. It's pretty cute, isn't it? Yeah, he had he had. Calm down. He took five days for his nerves to, you know, stabilize <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> after that top speed. But he was a champion of this highway, of the Lincoln Highway. Mm-hmm. Um, it became famous for, you know, kind of like Route six, uh, 66. We did an episode on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Lincoln Highway was notable for its famous roadside giants. 
and attractions and things just like Route 66 was. Yep. So then, um, th- but still there was this idea that, that private groups of auto enthusiasts were kind of the ones who were responsible for taking care of roads or designating highways, that kind of thing. And this group called the American Association of State Highway Officials, now it's the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. They sound like this very um, legal, important group, and they are, but they're not an actual, like, government group. They're a non-government organization that basically started, in, I think, 1914, saying, we're in charge of saying what the best practices are for roads, what roads should be made into highways, and they managed to basically insinuate themselves in between the government and the highway system and said, hey, these roads should be highways. Why don't you go fund and improve these these roads right here? And the government said, sure, we'll do that. And that's kind of how we started to get our first highway system. Yeah, so they were 1914. Then two years later, the Federal Aid Road Act came along to provide funding. And uh, I guess future libertarians started to weep <laughs> because the public couldn't take care of their own roads anymore. Uh-huh. Or maybe they were sad because it came clear that the public taking care of its own roads was not a workable solution for the future. Right. So they had to rely on the federal government to come in, and they did. And this this group, uh, as you said now, the AASHTO, mm-hmm. not only did they uh, designate highways and connect cities, but they said, you know, you should get funds. This road should be improved. We need to get a numbering system. We need to get signage that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to the numbering system, but the basics of it are that highways are numbered in reverse order from interstates. Right. Because what you don't want is, like, those numbers to be too close to one another. Right, which is which actually led to one of the quirks of the U.S. interstate system is that there's actually no I-50 in the United States because there's a U.S. Highway 50, and they would be in the exact same spot, basically. That's right. And U.S. Highway 50, I looked into it, it's called the loneliest road in America because it goes through some of the most desolate stretches in the entire country. Hmm. doesn't look like a fun trip to me. Where where does it go through? Um, the flyover states, <laughs> basically. The drive-through states? <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> but it's like it goes, uh, I can't remember exactly where it goes through, but from, from what I was reading, it's like there's huge long stretches between gas stations and towns and stuff like that, far more than the average even back road highway. Interesting. Yeah. I'm wondering, I'm just trying to think if I've been on it. I'll have to look at the map. I looked, I wondered if Yumi and I had been on it between Scottsdale and Las Vegas because I was like, man, we were definitely on some desolate stretches. No, that was, I think, like 93 or something like that or 60, maybe 60. It wasn't 50, though. Yeah. When I did my big out west trips, I was definitely on some roads where I thought if I have car trouble, I'm, you know, the buzzards will be circling. Doomed. Yeah. Yeah. So the highway system's going, not the interstate system yet. Yeah, that's a big, big thing to remember. We're talking about two different things here. Yeah, big diff because these roads were still uh, many, most of them two lane roads, and they still had some, you know, uh, dangerous curves, and they had stoplights, and they went through little towns and big towns, and it, they were just connected together at least. That's right. So around this time, though, as this highway system is is. Um coming along and improving, they were just constantly adding to it and designating new roads that were, you know, traditional horse and buggy paths to be improved into U.S. highways. The automobile is becoming more and more important. It's going from, you know, a luxury of the very rich to something that just about every American was starting to depend on, especially people who didn't live in the center of a city. Right. So, um, as the car gets more important, the highways start to get more and more important. And people started to say, look, I think we might be able to do better than what we have now. And that actually was the fire that ignited the uh, interstate system as we understand it today. That sounds like a great time to stop. As I was saying it, Chuck, I was like, (laughs) God, this is such a great segue into a message break. Yeah, we'll take a little break and come back and uh, talk about FDR right after this. Well, now when you're on 
Driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's stuff you should know. All right, so highways are being built. They're being connected. Mm -hmm. But uh, in 1937, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Mm -hmm. said, here's a plan uh, to the Bureau of Public Roads. It's 1937. There's six super highways. And everyone went, what? And he's like, these are going to connect our nation. And they had all these reports done. And that sort of formed the basis of what would become our highway system, but we couldn't afford to do this at the time. World War II came along, yeah, and everything just sort of was put on hold. Right. Um, understandably so. But then sure. afterward, America was like, man, we've got a lot of money. And from what I've read, there was a, a concern that this post-war boom that um, had been generated by World War II because, you know, one of the big knock-on effects of World War II, it pulled us right out of the Great Depression. Yeah. And put us into a pretty great um, boom period. Well, I think they were scared to death that we were going to go back to a recession or lose this boom. And so some people say that one of the main reasons, one of the great unstated reasons for why the federal government was suddenly so um, happy over the idea of spending billions and billions and billions of dollars to create this interstate system was to put significant numbers of people to work Mm -hmm. and just flood the economy throughout the entire country with government money to um, just keep that post-war boom going. And it worked like an absolute charm. It still works. I mean, that's still a a stimulus Mm -hmm. package that's uh, reliable is uh, a lot of times now it's improving stuff, obviously. But, sure. you know, that's what a lot of presidents turn to. Like, let's get people working on these roads that are falling apart. Yeah, look at these slackers. Somebody give them some <laughs> asphalt. So Eisenhower is obviously most associated with the interstate system uh, because it was when he was in office and he pushed for the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, mm-hmm. which really kind of made everything legit. Um for many reasons, this was like a very necessary thing, uh, not least of which was for the military. Right. Uh, we talked about, you know, since World War One, we needed bigger roads. Like, we didn't have railroad capacity to take all the, the armaments and all the things we needed and supplies. And then we didn't have the highways that could do it either. Right. So, in 1921, this guy named Thomas McDonald, he was the head of the Bureau of Public Roads, he and his staff really drew up uh, this this map, this proposed system of 78,000 miles, <laughs> handed it over to General John Pershing, who presented it to Congress and said, we need these for, you know, this is critical for the military. It mm-hmm. became known as the Pershing map, even though he just handed it over to Congress. Sure. It should be the Thomas McDonald map. Sure, but nobody knew who he was. They would have been like, get out of here, McDonald, you nobody. Probably. But General Pershing, they were like, yes, sir, and like clicked their heels together and started building things. That's right. So, that, But that was back in the 20s, I think, that the Pershing map was handed over, right? Yeah, 22. But it was apparently such a good map, the Pershing slash McDonald map. That's what we're going to rechristen it, okay? Yeah, and it was pretty, I mean— they drew it up in a way that made sense, but it wasn't like, here's your exact blueprint. It's just like, no. we've connected all the places we think we should connect. But it was basically the general blueprint that was used for the interstate system. So yeah. it was a pretty, pretty well done map. As, yes, it wasn't research, but they weren't, you know, 30 years later, they didn't go, this McDonald guy was way off. They're basically like, this, this works really well. That's right. And Eisenhower himself had traveled the Lincoln Highway during World War One in a military convoy. And he was like, this kind of stinks. Yeah. And all the military brass in Europe saw the Autobahn and they saw the highways in Italy. And they were like, we need some of this stuff. Plus also not just the military, but related to the military. This was done during the Cold War. You know, this is 1956 that the legislation was signed into law to create the interstate. And this was, you know, a pretty uneasy time. So there was a real concern that with the existing original U.S. highway system, if atomic bombs started getting dropped on the United States, we'd have a really hard time moving people from place to place, from bombed cities to unaffected cities. And um, this interstate was a big solution to that, too. Yeah, and uh, not to... Uh, oversell the military importance, mm-hmm. but it was literally called at first the National System of Interstate and Defense Highways. 
Right. Defense highways. Yeah. Interesting. At least it's not the offense highways, you know what I mean? Sure. Like they're real aggressive. They poke you in the chest while they're talking to you. Defensive driving. So um, there was another uh, another reason. There's a whole list of reasons. A lot of people say, oh, it was all military. That's uh, That was a large part of it, but that certainly was not the only reason that the interstates were built in the United States. Another one was that people were starting to move into the cities more and more. Mm-hmm. And they had been for decades already. People were moving, leaving their farms for factories. But this is putting an enormous strain on the cities themselves, this huge influx of people that the infrastructure couldn't really support. So they said, well, wait a minute. If we build these interstates, we'll be able to more easily connect these rural areas with the cities. And then I've got this genius idea that people can continue to live in the rural areas but go to and from work each day in the city. What do you think about that? And everyone (laughs) said, that's that's probably the best— most flawless idea anyone's ever had in the history of the world. Right. And then cue upcoming podcast on the suburbs. Right, exactly. And exurbs. Nice. I think we just did like a a choose-your-own-adventure wedge in there, Chuck. That's pretty sweet. Uh, Another couple of reasons, uh, leisure travel. You know, people hitting, getting in their car with the family and going on a vacation, Mm -hmm. driving cross-country to see these uh, roadside attractions and stay in hotels and swim in swimming pools. It was all very new stuff in America. Sure. Uh, safety. Yep. Uh, interstates, no matter which way you slice it, are a lot safer. Yeah. Even though you're going faster, a lot safer than these highways that they had out there. Yeah, which is really funny to think of. If you, Like I think of highways, like crash on a highway, it's just like, you know, limbs everywhere and just blood all over the place. But the thing is, <laughs> like, yes, you, you can get into big, serious trouble going very fast on, on a highway or on a, an interstate. But on a highway, you don't have things like this designated um, set distance between the uh, incoming and on, oncoming traffic. Yeah. Um, you don't have like gentle slopes to the shoulders so that if you do, you know, fall off the side of the road, or you're not necessarily going, yeah, you're not necessarily going to barrel roll. You might just like keep driving straight. There's all these designs that are created to make highways safer or interstates safer than highways. And part of it is like you can't get in an, a, a head on collision with another car. It's basically impossible on a United States interstate. Well, and yeah, unless somebody gets on going the wrong way, which happens. It does happen uh, very infrequently, but, but yes, under normal conditions, yeah. Right. You're not going to veer out of your lane. You'll veer into the median mm-hmm. and go, what the heck happened? I'm driving on grass. Right, exactly. <laughs> the other, the other, there's two other things that make interstates distinct from highways that improve their safety, safety tremendously. One is that there's, they're um, controlled uh, entrance and exits, yeah. right? So that means that when you get onto a highway or an interstate, man, I'm going to do that all episode apparently. <laughs> You're you're traveling in the same direction as traffic yeah, already. And ideally at speed. Right. Like so I, I remember very distinctly in uh, driver's ed the first time I merged onto the highway <laughs> and how nerve wracking that is and the, the dude telling me to punch it and I'm like, But the speed limit and he was he was <laughs> he correct. Said, We're gonna die. <laughs> he was correct in saying, like, no man, it doesn't matter. Like you gotta go as fast as they're going or it's dangerous. Yeah, that's right. But that's a that's a huge difference than say like a highway where somebody turns right on in into traffic yeah. and all the people behind them have to slow while they speed up to the flow of traffic. So that's a huge thing. And then also the reason why people don't turn right onto the highway is because any crisscross with the interstate, I should say, did it again. <laughs> any any crisscross with it. Um, is goes over like it's a bridge. You have an overpass. That's how yeah. you get across the highway. You, there's no stoplights. There's no you know somebody just driving you know perpendicular with the flow of traffic. You go over that with an interstate. I love that at the beginning of this. He said, "This is a very important distinction." <laughs> you should have said, "Which I will fail to make right. over and over." <laughs> Which I will blur in your mind forever. Uh, and then the other, one of the other big things, you know, and Ed said they don't have stoplights. Um, there are traffic lights now in a lot of cities to, uh, more safely get you onto the highway, mm-hmm. but they still give you enough ramp time to get up to speed. Right. That's to, that's for, to ease congestion. Yeah. Just to, 
so there's not a hundred cars trying to pile on at once. Mm-hmm. It's one car every whatever three or four seconds. I think we talked about that in our traffic episode, and I'm yeah. pretty sure like that really really helps ease congestion. It traffic was bubble shown to yeah. remember that. Yep, you coined that. I did, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Didn't I? I did. Oh, brake bubble. One of the bubbles. I think it was the brake bubble. I think so. I certainly talked about it a lot. I remember that. <laughs> uh, and then one of the the other big reasons, uh, kind of to kind of jump back here, why we needed these hi- highways. I'm sorry. Jump back. Here we go again. Interstates. <laughs> right. Was simple economics. If you could get these uh, urban centers connected to rural towns and these efficient roads where you could ship goods faster and further than you ever have and extend the range of the workforce more than you ever have, it's just it cannot be overstated what that did for the American economy. Yeah, because, I mean, connecting those rural areas and eventually suburban areas, it's like you have a way bigger workforce pool yeah. if you're a company located downtown than you did with these highways because, the you know, the commute would have just been unsustainable, unbearable. I mean, it's already bad enough on the interstates, but with just, you know, original U.S. highways, it just wouldn't, you couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, here's, to me, one of the, um, more interesting parts of this is that originally the U.S. interstate system and Eisenhower wanted them to all be toll roads mm-hmm. because he's like, what's better than having something that people just – it pays for itself. Mm-hmm. But they did all these studies, and it turns out – and I think this is still pretty much true – toll roads aren't a, a super great idea. And it, there have to be very specific conditions wherein a toll road will actually pay for itself or even – you know, bring in a profit. Right. Like, you, ha- it has to be in a very um, heavily trafficked area. Yeah. And then there has to be basically no other alternative but that road to get from point A to point B. Yeah, otherwise people are just going to say, I'm going to save my nickel or whatever it was back then. That's why, um, remember 400, Georgia 400? Sure. It was really successful as a toll road because it was so successful that it paid for the road. It paid for itself within 20 years, and they ripped the toll booths out because Republicans were in charge at the time. They said, no more tolls. Do you remember? Yeah, I think they were up longer than they said they were going to be up, though. Mm -hmm. And And people started complaining like, hey, I thought the plan was these are going down. Yeah, and Sonny Perdue, I think, was the guy who was like, all right, we're getting rid of them. Or maybe it was Deal. I can't remember. But the um, the the reason 400 was so successful as a toll road is because there really weren't very many other ways to, to get, you know, from uh, the Buckhead area of Atlanta up to the northern, northeastern suburbs except for 400. Yeah, that was, I mean, I don't, I don't have to pay $2 to go see my brother now, and I had to do that for many years. <laughs> yeah. Except for the $2 he charges me when I show up at his front door. Right, to play his Adam's Family pinball. <laughs> yeah. He's like, give me $2. Yeah. It has to be a $2 bill, too. Scott <laughs> right? will not accept anything else. <laughs> yeah, that's so Scott. So um, the toll roads don't pay for themselves. And one reason why, Chuck, they don't typically pay for themselves is because, especially if you're talking about interstates, there's really long stretches of interstate that are not heavily trafficked. Yeah. And you would have to pay for that with the toll. Well, if somebody's coming through, you know, once a day and paying a dollar, that's not going to pay for the upkeep. So much so that they actually, there was a study that was done, I think, ahead of time uh, that when they were planning the interstates. And they found that a lot of these, even like fairly successful toll roads or toll interstates, probably would just barely pay for the salaries of the toll booth workers. Yeah. So, like, that's a wash of all washes. So, they said, okay, no toll roads. How about instead we'll start taxing gasoline? Yeah, not just gasoline, but let's let's propose a bill uh, that taxes the rubber industry because of tires, mm-hmm. um, the trucking industry, and they all said, "No, I don't want to be taxed. Mm-hmm. Forget this. I don't like it." So they said, "All right, we're not going to do this." Yeah, they managed to beat the the bill to create the interstate system. Yeah, they beat it down. Uh, Congress goes into recession, and then the trucking industry went. Uh, what did we just do? Because <laughs> this actually would have been a really great thing for trucking. Oh, Lord. Uh, uh, uh. And so maybe we do want that after all. And they came back with a different bill that was pretty much the same, and yeah. that one passed. Yeah, and you can understand why they were they were a little short-sighted. They said, well, we don't want to pay extra for tires and for gasoline. We use that stuff. But right. then somebody crunched the numbers and said, well, everybody shut up. Right. But, but the idea that, that it would be done through tax dollars rather than toll roads, that was a big um, result of a, a PR push that was taken up by um, 
the AAA, General Motors, mm-hmm. other car companies, they formed something called the National Highway Users Conference. And um, from this, they they basically managed to create this this change of mentality in Americans' yeah. minds from, oh, yeah, roads are created and supported by rich people and auto enthusiasts to it is a national duty to build and maintain roads, and it is the federal government's responsibility to create interstates. And that was the result of a PR push. And part of that PR push is how we got freeways. That was meant to really kind of point out how bad an idea toll roads were. The idea is you don't want toll roads, you want free roads, which came to be called freeways. And freeways are basically supported by gas tax. That's right. Yeah. That's great. I thought so too. That's a good little dinner party. Uh, if you mm-hmm. want to be super obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you drove over on the freeway, did you? <laughs> you know where they well, got that. Right. So the in shot of all this, or the upshot, I guess, there is no in shot, is that these taxes uh, would be placed into the Highway Trust Fund. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty good deal for for states. It's sort of like Social Security. The government is going to tax, uh, levy these taxes to pay for more highways, but provide 90% of that funding to states to do it themselves. So the right. states, they're getting lots of jobs created, these big, huge public works projects. They only have to pay 10% of that, and they get a highway on top of that. Yeah, so, like, mayors and governors loved this idea oh, yeah. because it made them look like they were just so, like, all this job creation and economic growth was happening under them, and it just got dropped in their laps by by Ike and the feds. And they're only on the hook for 10% of it. Right. And the idea was every American city with at least 50,000 people, uh, we're going to connect them all within 13 years, which did not happen. No, it didn't. As a matter of fact, officially, the first— um, original plan was completed in 1992. Yeah. It was a little more than 13 years <laughs> from 1956. Yeah, and Ed points out it's, I mean, it's technically finished, but it's never finished. It's always being worked on and tweaked and changed here and there. Yep. So, Chuck, before they got started, they had to actually do some research first. I sure. thought this was pretty cool. Yeah. They didn't just say, sure, we, we've been building highways. We know how to build interstates. Um, they really, you know, did a lot of examination on how to best build these because the interstate is much different from the highway. Like the highway just kind of went around um, the terrain and the landscape. It was bent to the will of the landscape, subservient to it. Interstates are not like that. They are 100% American muscle (laughs) carving through Mother Earth wherever that interstate wants to go. Fast as yeah. you please. And they use something called cut and fill, which is exactly what it sounds like. They just cut out the track for the uh, interstate, and then they filled it with the stuff that makes up the interstate roads. But to figure out what to use for the interstate roads, they actually did a tremendous amount of research first. Yeah, they. Uh, this is really cool. They built these test tracks near Chicago, Illinois, and assigned a U.S. Army company to live there for two years and load up trucks and drive them around 19 hours every day for two years. <laughs> this sounds so awful. To see, like, you know, you can't just willy-nilly build a road that's supposed to last forever, mm-hmm. you know, with, with upkeep, obviously. But you got to really, really test this stuff out over time and wait and duration to, to make sure that it holds up. So they had to do all this to determine how thick it needed to be and what the layers need to be and what the final top layer is going to be. And uh, not only that, they had to decide like, hey, what about signage? It's got to be all the same. Uh, They they ended up settling on green uh, with reverse messaging, so green background, white lettering, which apparently is, they did tests, it's 40% more visible if you have a reverse message than the other way around, especially at night. Rather than, like, say, black letters on a white field? Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Which speed limit signs are like that, but, you know, they they have to distinguish, like, the exit signs and the highway signs because the actual highway badge, interstate badge, is blue and red. Right. Uh, red, white, and blue, I guess, if you count the white. Oh, I just got that. <laughs> yeah? There's yeah. white on there, right? Isn't it outlined in white? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and they tested colors. They decided green generally means go. So we're going to stick with green. Okay. Uh, 
but red, white, and blue for the shields for interstates, but green shields for business loops and spurs. Oh yeah. So when you Which see the business weird. thing, yeah, it does look a little weird. But the um, the uh, font that they used is actually on the green signs in particular is called Highway Gothic. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. Which is not very gothic. I feel like we've talked about that before. I'll bet it was in the traffic episode now that I think about it. Yeah? Yeah. So they get all this stuff done. They figure it out. The poor uh, army company that had to live on these tracks in Chicago for two years are all uh, discharged. Um, and the building begins. But it doesn't really go according to plan. Like we said, that it was supposed to take 13 years to complete the first 40,000 miles of interstate, and they completed it in 1992. But they ran into issues pretty much from the get-go. A uh, quick question. When you say they were discharged, you mean they just stopped that project? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm assuming here that they were discharged <laughs> because they were just they were forced to do that for two years that they said, you're fine, you don't have to do anything else. So on. you're out of the Army right? if you want to be? Okay. Yep. <laughs> and here's some extra money. Uh, this yellow book comes into play here, and this is when the what the federal officials um, finally officially submitted is the proposed map. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one, much like the Pershing map, wasn't super detailed, just had rough lines and spurs and beltways. And they said, all right, states, since you're getting a really sweet deal here, you need to figure out how best to do this within your state. Right. So um, before we go on and actually talk about what happened when they started building it, you want to take a last break? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, now when you're on the road, driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. Stuff You Should Know. All right. Okay, Chuck, so when you're building an interstate and you're building it through pasture land or fields or, you know, even desert, whatever, um, sparsely inhabited regions, you don't run into too much problem. You can do it fairly cheaply. You can do it pretty quickly. Um, There's just not a lot of stuff you have to get done aside from building the road. But when you start to approach cities, everything changes. It gets way more expensive it takes way longer, and the, the effects that it has on that area, on the city, can be really, really bad. And when they started to approach these cities and started creating the interstate system around the cities, um, some, some towns, especially the well-to-do, wealthier uh, people in the towns, said, whoa, 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 wait, this map shows this highway going through my neighborhood. Yeah, and that's, that's not happening. That's not going to happen. Yeah. And there were what were called highway revolts. Uh, where local local groups sometimes in in um, collaboration with uh, uh, like local politicians who felt the same way or probably lived in the same areas, kind of rose up against the feds or even the state government and said, "This is we need to replan where this highway is going." And some were successful. There was one in Northwest DC that never got built, and there was one probably the most famous of all was the one in Manhattan. That was led by Jane Jacobs, who wrote The Life and Death of Great American Cities, who took on Robert Moses, the guy who revamped Central Park into what it is now today, and won because they were going to build the interstate right through Soho, the Lower East Side, Greenwich Village, Chinatown, and Little Italy. They were just going to tear it up and go right through there, and Jane Jacobs managed to stave it off. Yeah, it was, you know— when the, when the rich people said, not in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you think happened? Right. They went to the people that couldn't fight back as much. They ran them through poor neighborhoods, used eminent domain to kick people out. Yeah. Uh, and there was some grassroots, uh, grassroots resistance. And like you said, sometimes it worked, but most times it did not. Yeah. And so this is, this is in cities where there was resistance. There were plenty of cities who were like, this is going to be, be, breathe new life yeah. into our city. So that's fine. Tear down whatever you want. Let's get this super highway of the future going through, you know, uh, Topeka. Sure. You know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure 40 goes through Topeka. Or Manhattan, Kansas. Okay, sure, Manhattan, Kansas. They, they Which couldn't is, get it in New York. It's ironic that we said that because um, the first um, f- the first project that was started on the interstate system began in Kansas and Missouri. Is that right? 
Yeah, I-70. Kansas and Missouri, as usual, leading the country forward in progressive new ways. That's right. And then in 1992, the reason why they consider the interstate system having been completed is because that section, I think it's I-70, not 40, um, was completed in Kansas. It connected onto itself, and they said, we're done. Yeah, it's I-70. So I think we should talk a little bit about just some of the nuts and bolts of um, what an interstate is and and what they needed to be when they were first designing these. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about getting away from, you know, they need to go fast. Right. And they need to be safe. Those are like the two big requirements. Yeah. So all these uh, big curvy roads and uh, absence of sight lines and blind bends and things that you had in the highway system was no good. Super steep grades. So they wanted to streamline all that, make it more gentle, good sight lines, nice and straight. Yeah. You got to have at least two traffic lanes in each direction for this divided interstate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now we have, what are we max out in Atlanta? Like six or eight lanes of Across? It's going to be 11. The plan is for 11 on each side eventually. So 22 lanes of traffic. It's just going to be a monstrosity. Oh, boy. Uh, The lanes and shoulders have minimum widths, uh, 12 feet for lanes, 10 feet for shoulders, and 4 feet for that very scary inside shoulder, which you'd never want to be pulled over on. Right. Uh, And then as far as speed limit goes, it's sort of varied over the years. I remember... uh, After 1974, I mean, I was only three in 1974, but that is when the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit was mandated uh, in most states. Uh, If you wanted to receive federal funding for highway projects, get in line with that because we had the gas crisis, oil crisis. So if you wanted your dough, drop it to 55, and it was 55 for a while. Sammy Hagar wrote a song about it. Oh, yeah. He couldn't drive it. No, despite, you know, the um, the oil crisis, he just could not drive it. But I remember when they started relaxing that and when 60 and 70 started popping up, it was just like, it was a really big deal. Hey, I don't know if I ever told you this or not, but Sammy Hagar's son is a fan of Stuff You Should Know. Shut up. He is. He wrote in. Really? Um, maybe to the end of the world, uh, to one of them. He basically wow. said, hey, I heard you guys shout out my dad or, or make a joke about, you know, Sammy Hagar <laughs> or whatever. I just want you to know I'm a big fan. And he sent a picture of him and his dad wow. like, hanging out on stage down in um, Cabo San Lucas. Of course. And, where else? Uh, yeah. So uh, shout out to Sammy Hagar's boy. And I bet you we made an I Can't Drive 55 joke. I, we certainly did. Well, Emily is very famous for liking Van Hagar more than David Lee Roth Van Halen. Sure. Uh, I, I don't know why you have to choose. They're so different. <laughs> I liked them both. I went and saw yeah. uh, Van Hagar live on the OU812 tour in high school. So great. And it was great. And I love that 5150 album, too. Man, I could air drum, air guitar, and air bass that entire album. Could you air keyboards? <laughs> um, not very well. I have fat fingers. Well, that's sort of the most boring air instrument. Yeah. Air it bass is cool, not funny either. <laughs> no, it's not. But it's easy. It's the easy. It's the best one to start out on. All right. Well, shout out to the Red Rocker and his son then. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Red Rocker, huh? I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. So, um, Montrose. That was his big band. Is that right? Yeah. Before he went solo, he was in Montrose. Okay. I didn't know that. I only knew him. I only picked him up around the I Can't Drive 55 era. I hope his son is listening because he's probably quite delighted with this <laughs> extended... <laughs> He's like, my name isn't Sammy Hagar's son, by the way, guys. (laughs) Sammy Hagar's son, Hagar. Uh, We should look up his name because that would be very nice. Okay. Are you doing it? Yes. All right. I'll just just continue on. Are we we editing this little combo out right here? No, we should have it in there, and I'll talk about Montana because Montana, as everyone knows, you don't mess with Montana. Uh They like to make up their own rules. Aaron. They were were very famous. What's his name? Oh, man, he's got two sons, Aaron and Andrew. It's one of the two. Maybe both of them are fans. <laughs> I bet you they are. Okay. <laughs> so Montana is very famous for saying, like, we just are going to drive however fast we want to drive. Mm-hmm. We may not even have a speed limit for a while. Uh, it became known as the basic law, and it was the speed limit in the daytime was whatever is reasonable and proper t- as determined by us. Mm-hmm. You hear me? <laughs> right. No one's going to tell us. Like Sammy Hagar to drive 55. Don't tread on me. I think that's Vermont. Oh, okay. Is it? No, that's the um, tea party. Oh. Aaron Hagar. I just found his email. <laughs> so forward that to me, will you? Yeah, sure. Um, so Montana eventually, I think right now, 
they do have a daytime speed limit finally. But I'm not sure what it is. It's probably like 95. Uh, yeah, it probably is pretty high up there, actually. <laughs> uh, but the, the idea of just not having a posted, a numerical speed limit, at, they, which apparently they did for a little while, that's just astounding. Yeah, but the idea of driving 60 through rural Montana is ridiculous. Well, yeah. You need to be going 80. Right, exactly. I'm guessing that the cops probably look the other way. Yeah, cops in Montana, they right. got smaller fish to fry. <laughs> so, I mean, because you can go so fast, that's the danger of the highways. But again, because it's closed access or controlled access where there are very few places you can get on and off, and those places are designated and designed for you to get on and off of the highway, that the rest of the highway is just for go, go, going, um, it is typically safer. I don't think we said compared to highways, an interstate per million car miles driven is it a million or a hundred million? million? I'm sorry, you're right. I believe per hundred million. I'm I'm tap dancing here because I cannot find it. <laughs> um, per hundred million car miles driven. I know that the the interstate death toll rate is only point eight. Right, and the I highways knew that are part more. Two. The highways are more. <laughs> that's what we're going with stats wise. I got it right here, friend. Um, One point four six deaths. For all other U.S. roads, that's per 100 million vehicle miles driven. Yeah. On interstates, it's 0.8 deaths per right. 100 million vehicle miles driven. So that's works. a substantial, almost almost half the rate of fatality yeah. as every other U.S. road. And it's because of the way it's designed. Even though you can go really, really fast, the thing is designed like bumper bowl to where you can't really get a gutter ball very easily. <laughs> So here's the thing. We talked about all these, uh, like you got to have a median this big and, you know, all these regulations that define what an interstate is. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not 100% the case everywhere you go. There are plenty of examples um, of turnpikes and throughways that were sort of grandfathered in here and there, um, toll roads that were grandfathered in, states that don't have the medians that they need or do have some steep grades and curves just because of the terrain and stuff or, you know, speed limit differences. And they, they relaxed some of that here and there. So that was that stuff was more of a general requirement, not like uh, the hard and fast uh, rule and the fist will come down and you will not be an interstate unless you have a median, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, the stuff that got grandfathered and is still around. But when they rebuild these roads or update them or improve them, which sure. is constantly going on, you know, they're going to get rid of that light and put in an overpass instead. That's right. So when you have like a public works project this big, and supposedly this is the biggest in the history of humankind, is, yeah. is that does that sound right? I mean, that's some have said that. Okay, we're going to go with that because we live in the USA. <laughs> um, but uh, when you have a project that big, it's going to have some weird quirks and foibles and that kind of stuff. All the Dave Barry adjectives. Yeah. Um, and one of the things is that because of the way that some some roads come up against one another, you have something called concurrency, where sometimes two different interstates will share the same roadbed for a stretch. Yeah. And so is, you can literally be driving on two different interstates by yeah, name. Right. And then one particular stretch of Virginia, 10-mile stretch around where Virginia and Tennessee come together— there's a concurrent stretch that's technically a wrong-way concurrent stretch. Oh. Did you know about this one? No. Yeah, so there's a stretch in Virginia, Interstate 81 and Interstate 77, and they're concurrent. So when you're driving on this 10-mile stretch, you're on both of these, these interstates. But the weird thing is, is 81 and 77, because they're odd-numbered highways or interstates, they run north to south. But this 10-mile stretch runs east to west, pretty weird, right? Yeah. It gets even weirder, Chuck. For this wrong way concurrent stretch of highway, this 10-mile stretch, you're actually going on I-81 north, but I-77 south, when the actual direction of travel you're on is going east to west. Yeah. I mean, when you think about perimeters, too, uh, there are times in Atlanta around the 285 where you're, you know, is it marked north or is it marked west mm -hmm. or is it marked south or mm -hmm. west or north and east? It's very confusing. Depends on where you are in that circle. Right. 
And we should say that with with the interstate numbering system, we got to talk about that. It's not meant to be a navigational guide. It's meant to keep from duplicating um, the same interstate route in different parts of the country and for the same interstate or for same numbered interstates to um, come up against one another. They're meant to keep everything quite separate. Yeah, from the beginning, they're like, get a map, people. Right. Like, don't rely on these signs to get you places. No. So, f- so if you are looking at a map of the United States going from the west to the east, um, odd number highways that run run from north to south, the, the low numbers start in the west. So I-5 is the first one, and that's over in California. That's right. Great, great highway. Goes up to way. 95, which is on the eastern seaboard. Yeah, great. Great expressway. And then in, in between, you have all the other fives. The odd number ones, they run from north to south. Now, east to west, you have even-numbered ones, and they start at the lowest in the south. I-20? Well, starting with 10. I-10 even. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of I-20. I-20 is good. I've driven that thing from here to California quite a few times. Okay, so I can see why you'd be a fan of I-20. That's yeah. a nice that's a nice drive right there. It gets you there. That's their motto. But if you go up, 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 you, you 10, 20, 30, 40, 60, there is no 50. And apparently, Ed says the Department of Transportation used to get letters from people saying, like, you guys screwed up. There's no Interstate 50. Oh, people. Which is hilarious. Have too much time on their hands. Here's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alaska and Puerto Rico... They don't have to meet these federal interstate standards, and technically, they're not federal interstates. They're interstates in name only. Mm-hmm. And then in Hawaii, you have uh, three interstates, all on Oahu, and they are designated with an H instead of an I. Instead of interstate, it's whatever, H. I don't even know. I've never been there. What are What are the numbers? I think there's an H5 maybe, H5. but the, the thing about it, even weirder than the fact that it's an H instead of an I, there's no dash. Yeah. It looks really like like Western European, European. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the like the M5 or whatever. You're like, I see palm trees, but I feel like I'm in Budapest. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. So what the we talked about like at the very beginning, I said that like one of the things that fascinates me are the massive sweeping effects that interstates have had on the United States. And a lot of people have studied the effects, and there have been some good and some bad. And I came across a forum. I can't remember on what um, what site, but the question was, is it a net gain or a net loss for America with the interstate systems? And it seemed pretty evenly divided. You can make really? a case both ways that, you know, in these ways it helped, in these ways it was really terrible. And it's kind of a subjective judgment whether hmm. when you add all those up, it was actually a gain for America or, you know, a loss. Well, we already talked about safety. Definitely safer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you listen to our Route 66 episode, You'll hear lots of stories about, uh, quote-unquote, dead towns, um, these these small towns and junctions where people traveled on these pretty popular highways uh, and restaurants and local mom and pops. They went away uh, in large part because of these expressways built right beside them sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that, ex- that uh, real estate where you get off on these exits is super expensive. Right. So it's not like... You're, you're going to see very few, you know, ma-and-pa restaurants at these exits. You're going to see the major chains, uh, the major gas stations, the major res- uh, major restaurants and shopping centers all right there kind of congregated on the highways. Right. So they produce homogeneity <laughs> across America, yeah, the interstates. There I go. But that so that created this sense of homogeneity where it was like the same national brands, the only ones who are big enough to buy up this real estate were the ones that you find at any given exit, you know, the same handful of them across the United States. So it lost its local flavor. For that's sure. A, that's a big effect. That's a huge loss for America. Yeah. Uh, rail use definitely declined. Mm-hmm. Um, trucking definitely improved mm-hmm. or benefited at least. Uh, what else? Ed says crime, which is something I never really thought about, but there have definitely been a lot of interstate killers yeah. who could uh, pick someone up at a truck stop and kill them and get on that highway and get out of there quick like. Uh, there was the I-5 Strangler, the I-70 Killer, um, a series of murders along I-40. I think that was like where they were like 
people were driving around shooting other people at high speeds on the highway. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah, in like sure the do. 80s or 90s? Yeah. Can't have that without the interstate. No. So, you know, that's an effect. But another way that it affected crime, too, um, is found really pronouncedly in L.A. Like, L.A. became the bank robbery capital of the world, from what I understand, at least the United States. And the reason why is because its massive system of interstates throughout the entire city um, allowed for really easy uh, escape routes for bank robbers. I could see that. There's a really great article by, I think his name's Jeff Manoff. Um, it, anyway, he had the he has like the um, the building blog, and it's um, it, it's really interesting. I'll see if I can find. It. I'll tweet it out. It's a really great article. I should have looked it up. Yeah. So in the end, uh, like you said, I guess it's sort of split on how people view this. It's hard to measure some of these effects and put like a number on things, like the death of the mom and pop store. Some of those are a little more esoteric and emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is interesting to think about. Yep. I like so, them. Uh, yeah, I like them too, but at the same time, it stinks that they're, you know, they're super congested. Sometimes the city's better than suburbia, but, you know, the interstates funneled people out into suburbia. Yeah, urban sprawl. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating to think, like, it's got the good and the bad. Just the sweeping effects are just so ingrained that you're just, they're tough to see sometimes, you know? Yeah. I got one more thing, actually. Oh, okay. The whole notion of the, uh, especially in California, of putting the word the in front of the highways, uh-huh. the 134, the 210, the 101. Okay. Whereas here on the East Coast, we say I-20, I-85. Right. Uh, it is not just an L.A. thing. Apparently, it's a lot of the Western states, especially on the West Coast, because uh, my my friend and fellow podcaster, Adam Pranica, was in Atlanta recently, and he said, do I take the 20? And I, I just thought it sounded so funny. Did you say, did you hit your head? And he's a Seattle guy, so they definitely say it there. And I was just kind of curious where that came from, and that's just a holdover. Uh, like you mentioned, California had some of the, the first freeways, uh, not interstates, but just larger highways. Mm-hmm. And they had they were named. It was before they were numbered. So this was in like the 1940s. They had the Santa Monica Freeway, the Coanga Pass Freeway. It was designated by where it went. Right. And they were, you know, it would make sense to put a V in front of those. And that just sort of held over. Once they started numbering them, they couldn't shake it. But even still, we still didn't use the back then because if you think about it, there was a, a famous highway from Indiana down to Miami called Dixie Highway. And here you call it Dixie Highway or Old Dixie Highway, not the Old Dixie Highway or the Dixie Highway. We just don't like the here. Maybe so. It was a West I, Coast thing. It was too hot, and everybody had too much hookworms to say the. I if guess so. It was unnecessary. So if this kind of thing floated your boat, go check out. Um, I read uh, some many good articles, but one was uh, by Linda Poon on City Lab. Look that up. Another was by a guy named Joseph Stromberg, um, Vox, and then that Jeff Mana. Um, he doesn't have the building blog. He has cabinet is the name of his site. And that article about L.A. being the bank robbery capital is called Forensic Topology. And our own Grabster. Of course. Hats off to Grabster. Uh, And since we said Grabster, that means, everybody, it's time for listener mail. All right, I'm going to call this follow-up on the punk episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hey, guys, just finished listening to your punk podcast. Being a hardcore kid uh, since I was in elementary school and a Stuff You Should Know fan since high school, I was stoked to see these two very different things that I listened to come together. First of all, I'm sorry you guys ever felt intimidated by punks. Uh, The time when punk, quote, died, end quote, is really when the scene got, in general, uh, way more enjoyable to be a part of. The old heads got jobs and families and stopped coming out to shows uh, that weren't the bands they listened to uh, coming up, so the kids took over and created a more positive and inviting environment. In my lifetime, I've seen this go even further. In the last 10 years or so, hardcore fans have gone uh, from, at times, hyper-masculine, you-know-what, measuring contests (laughs) Mm -hmm. to a safe place for queer kids and people of color to talk about their struggles. Wow. Uh, The scene is very much alive from my birthplace in the upper Midwest to where I currently live in Appalachia. Uh, I am in the early stages of running DIY shows out of my basement, so if you ever want to go to a hardcore show... Just let me know and make the drive up to Knoxville. Okay, that sounds fair. (laughs) I promise I won't let anyone beat you up for calling the Sex Pistols punk. Wink, (laughs) wink. Uh, Thanks for all the great listening you guys have provided me over the years, and please keep delving into different genres, even if you feel out of your depths. 
That is from Evan, and uh, he also sent a very nice PS just about uh, how we've been there for him, and, and we want to say thanks for that too, Evan. That's really cool, man. Thanks a lot, Evan. And also, I mean, hats off for having hardcore shows in your basement. That's awesome. That is very awesome. Well, if you want to be like Evan and be super cool and hardcore and also super inclusive and nice, we want to hear from you. You can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check us out on social media. Well, I pulled that one out. Or you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We'll be right back.